You're listening to Episode 8, Part 2 of Mandy's Story on the Child Life On Call podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick. But for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries. The list goes on, and then you still may not have all of the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. You know, the first year was really hard on us because we, you know, just everything we were dealing with and we dealt with it very different ways. Um, But our relationship is incredibly strong. And, you know, all of these trials and tribulations early on, you know, only made it stronger. Um, So he's, I wouldn't have wanted anyone else by my side through, you know, all of this. So, yeah, he's absolutely my rock. You just heard Mandy talk honestly about her husband, Mike, and we will hear more from her in a bit. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, welcome. But please do yourself a favor and go and listen to episode seven. You'll have a much greater understanding and appreciation for today's episode, part two. Please stay tuned at the end of this episode for a preview of next week. You'll hear Jamie and Liz, a mother and daughter, both talk about Jamie's experience with a congenital heart defect and subsequent acquisition of HIV. At the end of episode seven, I mentioned that Nolan was scheduled for surgery, and I'm sure you're interested in an update. This is directly from Mandy. The doctors were able to perform a scope of his airway to identify the obstruction that is causing the apnea. However, after getting a closer look at just how constricted his airway is, they decided they could not safely proceed with the surgery. They are now discussing a more involved approach to the surgery and exploring other options altogether. They are disappointed but thankful to be working with a team of doctors who are so dedicated to finding solutions for their one-in-a-billion patient. Last week, Mandy talked with us about finding out about Nolan's MAD-B diagnosis. On today's podcast, she'll talk about what it's like to live with a child like Nolan. So without wasting any time, let's get back to Mandy and Nolan. She starts off by taking us from that moment of finding out that Nolan had MAD-B. They walked in with a couple of medical journal articles printed out, you know, basically trying to provide us with all the information they could on his condition, which we'd already read weeks ago when we Googled because they're just really isn't much out there because with all the, you know, conditions and diseases in the world, what doctor chooses to focus their time on something that's only affected a handful of people in history. Um, Thankfully, one doctor did. (laughs) Otherwise, we never would have gotten a diagnosis. And of all the gin joints in the world, he lives in Dallas, Texas. So they came in and, you know, went over what they could from the articles and, you know, provided some genetic counseling, which is um, 
he basically received a recessive gene from both me and my husband. Um, so some middle school science for you, you know, in those cases, you have a one in four chance. If you both get, if you both pass on a dominant gene, great. If you both pass on a dominant recessive, you're a carrier like my husband and I were. Um, and if you pass on two recessive, then you end up with his condition. Um, and I remember them saying, you know, oh, so if he, you know, has children with a woman who doesn't carry the gene, which we don't actually know how common it is because there's no way to, you know, there's no tests out there tracking this type of information, but he could definitely have, you know, he would likely have perfectly healthy children. Okay. So now you, you're talking to me about the health of my unborn, my future unborn children and my future unborn grandchildren, you know, not really what I was trying to process at the time, but you know, they were great. And the, the, the Navy actually sent us back to Dallas to meet with this specialist. So, I mean, they, they definitely took care of us. And um, at that point in time, it was also just so difficult to process that my child here at seven or eight months old, they knew exactly what was wrong with him, but there was nothing they could do about it. And it was just so hard to understand you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, you know, how can we know it's seven months what's wrong and, and I still can't do anything to change it? Yeah, that's that's incredibly hard. You know, you had already known a lot about the condition just from your own research and what was from available and what lined up with Nolan and what didn't. But um, when you are explaining it to family or friends or people you meet, how do you explain Mad B? So... Um, the most common question to any sort of specific part of his condition is we don't know, right? So if there's only been eight documented cases in medical history, granted, there were probably more that went undiagnosed, but that doesn't really help, help us. Um, they really just don't know what to expect. They can look at that sample size of eight and say, these are all things that they shared. These are things that some of them had, um, but they really couldn't give us any definites of what would or wouldn't happen or when it might happen. Um, so it's a, it's a atypical form of progeria and that it looks similar to progeria, which is a uh, rapid aging disease. Um, the progeria in itself is very rare. The fact that it's a rare form of an already rare condition is um, tough, but it's rapid aging. Um, so think of a child experiencing things that much older people normally would. So arthritic joints, which one started showing signs of when he was two, um, hair loss, which is not something that Nolan has shown signs of, but a child with progeria, the life expectancy is 13 due to heart, uh, disease, heart failure, which again is not something normally a child would have to deal with. Um, MADV is not as severe as progeria, so his prognosis is better, but we really just don't know. Have you tried to connect with the, um, I guess the brothers that you happened upon researching, um, when you were kind of looking through all this information, have you reached out to them or, or their family? So I started trying to find out, um, you know, anything I could about progeria, cause that's, you know, a slightly bigger network. And there's occasionally specials on TV of various children that have had progeria following, you know, their lives, their struggles. Um, 
And I was watching one and there was a woman who lived in England whose son had what appeared to be an atypical form of progeria who just happened to be on the show I was watching. And for the first time in my life, I felt like a total crazy stalker. I Googled around, found her name, found her on Facebook, and then proceeded to write the, what I felt was the most absurd message of my life where I'm like, hey, I saw you on TV and I think our sons might have similar diagnoses. And I sent it to her and thought, well, maybe she thinks I'm crazy, but if she does, she lives in England. So, you know, no harm, no foul. (laughs) But she didn't. She wrote me back, you know, really quickly and said, oh my gosh, thanks for reaching out. Um, you know, here's what I, you know, here's the information I can share with you. And uh, better yet, we have a Facebook group that's strictly for parents of kids with progeria where everyone can throw out questions and, um, you know, about things going on with their kids. So it immediately connects you to every person in the world um, who has a child that's experiencing similar things. So with one crazy message, I was suddenly plugged into a network of people in Europe, Australia, you know, all over and all over the U.S. and given access to, you know, the best information out there on the condition because it's not in medical journals. It's with their parents. Wow. So you put yourself out there and the universe came back. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. How did you handle, I guess, all the stress that comes along with his diagnosis and getting the diagnosis and... How did you and your other family members handle it? The good news with Nolan getting the diagnosis so early, you know, obviously he doesn't know at this point in time that he has, that he's any different from any other kid. So that's been very joyous for me because I've seen him enjoy his childhood just like any other kid would. He does what he does. And I think it's been easier for me to handle his diagnosis, seeing that he is enjoying childhood just like any other kid would. Um, but like I said earlier, we were living in Hawaii at the time. So obviously very far away from, from family. Um, I'd only been in the Navy for about seven years. So I'd already decided while waiting for the test results that if he, if he came back, that he had this, that I was going to resign my commission because, um, a military lifestyle is tough on families and it's, it's really tough on kids. You know, you move every two or three years, you change schools, you change doctors, Um, So hard enough on any kid, but for a kid with, you know, this rare of a condition, I didn't want to put him through that. I didn't want to change doctors every two years. I didn't want him to have to go to a new school every two years and explain to a whole new set of kids every two years, um, everything about him. And with only seven years and I knew there was no way I was going to be able to get stationed in one place and stay there. Um, Meanwhile, my husband had enough years in to retire. So we knew we would have good health care for him. And we chose to, you know, I would resign and he would continue on with his career. And we put in for a humanitarian transfer, as they call it, um, back to Texas, which, again, Dr. P was instrumental in writing everything we needed. Um, So we came to San Antonio. Uh, It was a good place for his job. And then we were also close to Dallas for the specialist. So pretty much right after his diagnosis, I had... I was drafting my letter to resign from the Navy. I was meeting with the members of my you know, chain of command to discuss this decision with them. 
I was you know, getting the paperwork done for the transfer back to Texas. I was trying to figure out how we were going to move our whole family and where were we going to live and where are the kids going to go to school and um, all of those types of things. So I was very busy in the beginning, which I think helped me cope because I do better, you know, if there's a lot going on and I don't have a lot of time to just sit around and, and think about it. Um, but it was an incredibly lonely time right after his diagnosis. Um, I, I lost my mom my senior year of high school, um, to cancer and, you know, not very many high school students have lost a parent. Um, so I, I felt very lonely then. And it was this feeling of no one I know can relate to me. No one I know can even knows how to act around me or what to say or what to do. So I, I remember very vividly the first day I came back to school after my mom had passed away, I was walking down the hall and I went to a huge high school. Um, and I felt like everyone was staring at me, even though I don't think probably anyone was, but I felt like everyone was staring at me, like, you know, looking at their friend next to them, like, Oh yeah, that's the girl whose mom passed away. And, you know, I went back to work after that and I felt the same way. It was like, you know, I work with mostly men in the Navy and none of them knew what to say. None of them had a child with, you know, a, a rare condition. None of them had ever been in my shoes and they didn't know what to say. So it was like, do I bring it up? And is she going to get upset? And am I going to make her uncomfortable? But if I don't bring it up and I just ignoring it and then, you know, think that I'm, I don't care. Um, so I really didn't go into work too much after that because it was just, it was very hard and, you know, I had enough to do just to get ready to, to transfer. Um, but it was, it was very lonely because I went from, you know, working with a lot of people every day. I had tons of interactions with other adults to, you know, none of that. And I didn't even have any friends who had kids with any sort of condition. So, you know, I had my husband who, has been amazing throughout, you know, all of this and we've leaned on each other. Um, but it was, it was really tough. So Mandy and I met in high school and, um, what's really interesting, I think, is that you and I have known each other for most of our lives, but we haven't connected back together in 15 years, I think is what we said, but thanks to Facebook, and social networks and stuff, we were able to um, connect through this podcast. But, you know, Mandy, like, I have to tell you that I'm sure I was one of those kids in high school who was looking at you and then trying not to look at you and didn't know what to say and maybe walked the other direction. And, you know, for that, like, I'm so sorry, because what I should have done is just like run up to you and and hugged you and, and told you that I had been thinking about you. And I guess as someone who's been through something that's so difficult, what could people on the outside do? Or, you know, what is the right way to handle, um, like the, your good friends who you felt were really there for you, what were a couple things that they did that made you feel like they were there for you and supported you? Well, I think, you know, everyone's different. Um, and there really is no perfect thing to say. Um, but I mean, it was tough after, seeing anyone for the first time because 
just like in high school, you know, news spreads. So when you see someone, they already know and you don't have to tell them. And they just, you can tell the way they're looking at you. They're just, they don't know what to say. And they're, they're so sad. And, you know, my, my friends that were, were great for me in, in high school, some of them honestly didn't say anything. They were there for me that I could go and talk to and cry to throughout my mom's illness. And they didn't have to say anything. It's just, I just needed someone to listen. Um, and just knowing that they were there for me. So, you know, I think a lot of people think, what's the perfect thing to say? And in situations like this, the perfect thing to do is listen and, you know, tell that person that you're there for them and, and know, let's make sure they know you mean it. You know, a lot of people say, oh, if you need anything, just let me know. I'll, I'll do anything. But, you know, it's the friends that you know will be there for you. And, and you know I, I can drive to their house right now and and talk to them. You know, they're the, the, they're the people that get you through it. Does being back in Texas feel like coming home at all? I guess, do you think that helped at all in your coping? Are you glad to be back here? Or do you wish you were kind of still, um, I mean, who would want to leave Hawaii? But <laughs> Fine. Everyone says that. But honestly, living there for two years was, was enough for us. It's one of those places that's good to vacation and oh, leave. I absolutely go back for a week. Yeah. But yeah. not to live. <laughs> Um, you know, even though Dallas is only four hours away, pretty much my only memories of San Antonio as a kid are like going to the Alamo or I hadn't really spent that much time here. So, you know, we chose to live, uh, we live basically in New Braunfels. Um, so small town in Texas is, is definitely different from military life in Hawaii. Um, but I think it being a new place for both my me and my husband was was helpful um a little scary yeah but you know when we flew back to meet with a specialist in dallas um we drove down to san antonio and spent two days and bought a house so having never really ventured out into the you know residential part of san antonio my husband and I were able to go around and say, nope, this part does not feel like a fit for us. And then we came out to, you know, the Northeast side and said, this is it. Looked at some houses, said, this is it. And that was that. Next, Mandy gets really honest about some of the toughest parts about Nolan's diagnosis. So one of the first things I think you have to do is you have to let yourself grieve. Um, I didn't lose my son that day, but I did lose the life that I thought my son would have. Um, you know, he, he's not going to be able to play football, not a big deal, not life changing, but if he wanted to play football, I, I wish he could play football, um, or, you know, baseball or any sport, um, so I think you just have to you have to let yourself be sad and and not feel guilty about being sad because it's not that I wish my son was any different. I I adore him and love him. Um but I wish he had every opportunity that he wanted. I think that's what every parent wants for their kid, you know, for their kid to be happy and be able to do anything in the world that they want to do. So 
you know, that was tough. And not being able to do anything about it. Again, he's seven months old and there's all these things now that, you know, are going to be difficult for him in his life. And I'm powerless to do, you know, anything about it. Um, which I guess isn't entirely true. You're powerless to change it. But, you know, we were fortunate enough that I could, you know, resign from the Navy and, you know, be there to take him to all of his appointments and all of, you know, he was at one point in time doing five different therapies a week, you know, physical, uh, feeding, occupational, like all of these things, um, which can be very draining. But I mean, any mother would tell you they would do absolutely anything for their child. Um, it was also really tough, though, to be diagnosed, have him diagnosed with something I'd never heard of. Um, you know, it's tough enough when you're sharing that type of news with someone. But when you're sharing news with them that they don't even understand what it means, and you really don't even understand that much what it means, and any question that they want to ask you, you're probably going to have to say, I don't know. Um, you know, it's tough. I've yet to meet a doctor who had heard of his condition before, you know, reading his case file and looking it up before we came in. Um, so, yeah, there, there are times I wish I could just have a concise explanation that no further questions would be asked. You know, if someone says my child has muscular dystrophy, people don't usually follow it up with, you know, questions and want to know more information. They usually just say, oh, but when your child has something that they've never heard of, it's only natural to want to ask questions. That in and of itself can be difficult. And it also made me feel more isolated. Once again, I have my son has a condition that no one's ever heard of. So until I got plugged into that network on Facebook, I, I felt alone again in that matter. There's an HBO documentary called Life According to Sam. Uh, Sam Burns was a man with uh, progeria whose parents were both doctors, are both doctors. And when they got his diagnosis at around age one, they said, okay, he has progeria, what do we do? And they were told there's nothing to do. There's no treatments. There's no one trying to find treatments um, or a cure. And they quit their jobs and started the Progeria Research Foundation and have spent their lives looking for, you know, a cure. So it's a fascinating documentary. You learn a lot about progeria, uh, but one of the things Sam talks about in that movie is, uh, you know, part of the trials were, you know, part of the drug trials were going to the hospital and having a whole bunch of tests run. And, you know, for that week, he felt very, the only thing that mattered about him that week seemed to be progeria. Each doctor was looking at him in just in terms of progeria. Uh, and he didn't like that because he, progeria did not define him. Progeria was not who he was. Um, there was so much more to him than, than his diagnosis. And I feel the same way, obviously, about my son. Nolan is not just a kid with Mad B. He, you know, loves books, will cry every single night that he wants more books, even if I've read 17. He is obsessed with trains. He wears Thomas shirts probably five days a week. And all around my house, I will find lines of trains and cars and perfectly straight lines that he's been playing with, which he most certainly did not get from me. He, you know, he's loved being a big brother. He loves his baby brother, gives him kisses and tickles him. And one day when I was pregnant, I started singing three little birds by Bob Marley. I 
I don't know, it was in my head. And he loved it. And so he, you know, that became one of his favorite songs. And he'd say, Mama, sing Bird, Bird, Bird. He's an amazing kid. And I want him to have a normal, as normal of a life as he can. And I don't ever want him to feel as though his diagnosis is who he is. Um, you know, and, and in so many ways, he is like any other kid. You know, he loves going to the park and riding, you know, getting on swings and every, he has yet to eat the cake of a cupcake. He just licks the frosting off and tosses the cake aside. Um, you know, it's, it's so typical in so many ways. But then, you know, there are moments that are just crushing, you know, stop you dead in your tracks where, you know, he struggles to get out of bed some days because his knees hurt him and, you know, his legs are stiff. And and those kinds of things are hard, but I, I try not to focus on, you know, the things he can't do or, you know, the negative things. I try to focus on all the things he can do and all the things he loves to do and, you know, try to fill his life with all of those things, which, again, I think pretty much every parent, that's what they're trying to do is fill their kid's childhood with, you know, happy memories and, you know, but as hard as I do try to keep things normal, there are times that it is just exhausting where I wish, you know, I could do something as simple as go to the grocery store without having someone walk up to me and offer me their advice or share what they think his diagnosis is, which is, it never ceases to amaze me because I don't think that I would ever approach a stranger and, but people feel the need to do it. And, you know, part of it, that's hard for me is I will never see Nolan for the first time like a stranger does. I've no, uh, you know, I see him every day. So to me, he doesn't look all that different from any other kid. Um, but then I go out in public and, you know, a kid walks up and says, mom, why does his face look like that? Or, you know, Oh, look at him. And it's like, it's, it's heart wrenching because it's this reminder that he is different it's tough watching parents deal with it at times you know some parents are great and have a ready answer for them and and some parents are mortified well I'm pretty sure all parents are mortified my Nolan has done things that have mortified me um really ironically we were in Costco one day and the man behind us in line was in a wheelchair and you Nolan's in the cart so facing him and he was just staring at him and the guy you know looked up at me I looked up at him and said, hey, if I was you, I'd be staring at me too. And I thought, if only you understood the irony that <laughs> the other way around. And, but, you know, one of my concerns too, there was one day last summer at the pool, you know, one girl said something, you know, why does his face look like that? Or whatever she said. Um, she didn't mean, she had no malice toward him. Um, but her mother, you know, goes high and right and you know, tells her, you apologize to him right away. And she didn't, as any kid refuses to apologize. And this proceeded to, you know, she burst into tears. Her mom made her get out of the pool. Her mom made her sit on a chair by the side of the pool until she apologized and, you know, gave me a knowing nod and said, don't worry, I'm taking care of this. And I was like, please don't (laughs) do this. She's never going to talk to him again. The next time she comes to the pool and sees him, she's going to look the other way because last time she talked to him, she got in trouble. I had, I'm at a splash pad last summer and um, there was boys who were probably, I don't know, nine, 10 years old, old enough to know better. 
And over the course of time, I see that they are pointing at him and then running back to their friends and bringing their friends over and pointing at him and talking. And I'll be honest, I was six months pregnant. It was like 100 degrees outside. I was not having it. And I stopped this 10-year-old and I was like, do you think it's funny to make fun of a two-year-old? And of course, he was not expecting me to say this. He thinks he's being sneaky running around. And he, I mean, deer in the headlights looked at me and, and says to me, oh, no, I was telling them all that there was a really cute kid over here that they should see. And of course, for a moment, you're like, oh, my gosh, was that what he said? But of course, that's not what he said. No 10-year-old boys are running around. Oh, there's a really cute baby over there. So I was like, well, just remember to be nice to other kids. And he immediately took off and never did not come back to his splash pad. He went over to the playground and I didn't see him again. I'm sure it gets exhausting trying to take the high road. <laughs> you know, some days I'm fine and, you know, doesn't bother me at all. Some days, you know, I run out of a room crying. And then some days I, you know, talk to a stranger's 10-year-old child and <laughs> tell them to be nice. I'm glad that Mandy brought up these scenarios. It definitely made me look in the mirror and take note of how I'm teaching my own child how to handle situations and the way I want him to treat others. My whole family's life was radically changed by his diagnosis. Um, had he been a typical healthy child, I probably would have stayed in the Navy. And at this point in time, I would probably be being sent on deployments, you know, be stationed on a ship where I'm sent on deployments for seven to 10 months at a time. I, you know, the military life is a, is a tough life uh, for, for families. And when I got his diagnosis and we didn't know what to expect or what the future held, I said, you know what? The most important thing in my life is my child and my family. So it allowed me to slow down and say, you know what? My career is not, my priority in life. My priority in life is spending time with the people that I love, which is my family. And I think that that has been, you know, that's, that's rippled through, you know, my household. Um, my husband retired about a year after we moved to Texas from the Navy and we decided to open up a business in New Braunfels, which we would never have done if <laughs> I had still been in the Navy. Um, you know, it had been a lifelong dream of my husband's to open a business. He, you know, and he gave me the courage and we decided to, you know, take a leap of faith. And it's been fantastic. I mean, it's, it's of course been hard, but it's offered me the flex. It's offered our family such flexibility. Um, so, I mean, that's been, that's been incredible. And, you know, it gives me a lot of perspective. You can get lost on Facebook seeing people touting that their child is crawling six weeks before, you know, babies usually start crawling. And isn't that fantastic? And start to, you know, compare your own child to it. But you, no one didn't walk till he was about, I think, 15 months, um, which is actually still within the range of, of normal. Um, but I was talking to the physical therapist about it. And she says to me, but, you know, I've never gone on a job interview where they asked me, when did you start walking? Like, it's something that right now in their life seems so important, but really in the grand scheme of things is not. So, you, you know, 
it gives you this perspective of like, it's not when did my son start walking? It's my son's walking. You know, people I think don't celebrate, you know, don't enjoy the milestones because they're so, you know, set on being, having the child that was the first to do this or that, or being, you know, in the 95th percentile for height, I'm going to have a tall kid. Like, does that matter? You know, it's, it's so easy to get wrapped up into those things, but um, you know, I, I was able to celebrate every milestone because no one didn't just like an average baby just start crawling and start walking. He had to really work and fight to reach those milestones. So when he did, it was, you know, a joyous day. It wasn't like, okay, let me go mark in the baby book that, you know, he's rolling over now. I had my second son this last fall and at his, I think it was his one month appointment. They told me he was in the like 50th percentile for weight and, you know, 55th or 60th or whatever percentile for height. And I, tears came to my eyes because this doctor was telling me my son was average. <laughs> that is all I had ever wanted. But, you know, so he was in the hospital for three and a half weeks in Hawaii. So right now it's like, hey, he's not in the hospital. Like, it's okay. You know, he he had to undergo a pretty, um, he had to undergo surgery when we moved to Texas. Um, and that doctor changed our lives because the doctors in Hawaii looked at Nolan and were terrified to operate on him because of his condition. He has very narrow passageways and he's a very high risk patient. But the doctor here met him and said, you know what? I'm up for the challenge. Let's do it. It's going to improve his quality of life so much. We have to do this for him. And he did it. And the surgery was scary and things that I never want to experience again. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's off the ventilator now. And that was life changing. But it's hard to find moms at story time that can relate to my 18 month old just had surgery and doesn't have sleep apnea anymore. Most people are like, sleep apnea. I thought that's what overweight old people had. What resources would you recommend to a parent who's facing the same challenges? I would say the most helpful resource to me is, has really been the other parents. Um, so social media has been a great way to connect with people that I never would have met otherwise. So, you know, taking that plunge and messaging a stranger sounding like a crazy person, you know, it's made all the difference. Um, and because I am plugged into that network, they are, uh, my family has been invited to go spend a weekend this fall with um, a bunch of other families with kids with progeria up at a camp in Connecticut. And we'll have the ability to meet these other families face to face. And we'll be able, you know, no one will be able to meet other kids with progeria. And we would never have had that opportunity had I not stumbled upon this, this Facebook group and gotten connected with them that way. So, you know, they say it takes a village, but in this case, the, you know, village just might be strangers across the globe coming together, you know, with a common, a common diagnosis. Is this, um, is this the first time they'll be meeting up as campers or is this something they do yearly or annually or how does it work? I think the first time they did it in the U.S. was two years ago. Um, I know in Europe they've done um, quite a few, you know, reunions, Um but, you know, progeria in that itself is so rare. I, I know it's it's a great opportunity for the kids to 
have a weekend where they're not worrying about being different because in that case, they're not. So they get to, to really just be a kid. And I think it will also be great for us to be able to meet face-to-face other parents and talk to them. And even the siblings get to go so they can, you know, interact with other siblings who maybe are experiencing a different side of the diagnosis. I'm certain that you're already impressed by Mandy, and I think this one quick story will further prove the point. When I was in the Navy, I every place I went, pretty much everyone knew that I was a slow runner. Um, at Officer Candidate School, which is where you become an officer, I was the slowest person there, and I was heckled my entire time there about being a slow runner. Um, but, you know, I, I moved to Texas, and I'm looking at my son who's, you know, fighting to walk, and I said you know, I'm capable of running a half marathon. It might be the slowest half marathon ever recorded, but I'm capable of it. I've just thought, oh, I'm not a good enough runner to do it. I take for granted the fact that I have the ability to run a half marathon. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to do it. And I trained and I did it. And my husband and son were waiting at the finish line for me. And it was it was a great feeling. And he gave me the courage and the strength to, to go out and do that. Here are some suggestions that Mandy has for you if you find yourself feeling isolated by your child's illness. Uh, Well, I think what Dr. P told me in the hallway that day was really the best advice I I was given, which was to go hug my child and keep loving them because the fact that I had a diagnosis didn't, didn't change who he was at the end of the day. Um, And there are plenty of people with rare conditions that get misdiagnosed for years or in fact, never receive a diagnosis. So getting a diagnosis was definitely, you know, a step in the right direction. Um, and then, you know, you just kind of have to take it, take it from there and not get too focused on, you know, the future and all the things that could happen, but instead focus on making the most out of the present. Um, of course, you will worry about the future and some days you'll worry about the present. Um, but you just have to let go of some of the expectations you might have had. And accept that it's okay that those expectations are changed. You know, life's not fair. Um, I think I learned that lesson in high school. Um, you know, it's life's not fair. And no child deserves to go through this or any condition or any, um, every child deserves to have the life that they want. But that's just not reality. So you just have to get out of your situation um, and don't try to go through it alone. Find people who understand and can relate. Um, learn everything you can about your child's diagnosis. So you feel comfortable that you are doing everything you can that's in the interest of your child. Um, because at the end of the day, you'll not find peace in their diagnosis. But you may find peace that you've done everything you can to provide the best life for them. And that you know that you have done, that any option that's out there as far as a treatment goes or a therapy goes, you know that you've looked into it and made what you think is the best decision for them. To recap, Mandy says, go hug your child and keep loving them. The diagnosis doesn't define your child. Try not to get too focused on the future. Focus on making the most out of the present. 
don't go through it alone, and learn everything you can about your child's diagnosis so that you know that you've made the best decision you can. If you would like to reach out to Mandy, please message me and I will get you in touch with her through email. I'd like to sincerely thank Green Photography for the most beautiful photos of Mandy and her family. Those photos are keepsakes I know they will cherish for a really long time. If you haven't already, please follow along with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or you yourself would like to share your story, please get in touch with me via email at info at childlifepodcast.com. Now, here's a quick preview of next week's episode. I remember, um, Mom, you came up and you had this tiny little stiffed teddy bear as a, um, a little present for me. And it was, it was like tiny enough to fit in your hand. And you had it cupped in your hand because you wanted to surprise me with it and like, crept up <laughs> to the bed. I had just woken up from something. And you opened up your hands to reveal this adorable little teddy bear. And I just puked all over it. And you. <laughs> and it was so- I felt so bad for throwing up on you, but I also felt so bad for throwing up on my new present. <laughs> and I was like, I ruined it. <laughs> and actually, and you did. He, he, he survived. <laughs> <laughs> you washed that thing off very well. <laughs> Next week's episode will be a little different, and then we will get to hear from both Jamie and her mom, Liz, and recount their experiences. They're incredible people, and you will laugh and cry along with their stories. Thank you for listening today to Mandy's story, and I can't wait to connect with you on social media and have you back next Monday. Thanks for listening.